Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be right where Joel left off in his reading. So 1 Corinthians 13. Last week I told you guys how I've been reading books in the Holy Spirit just for weeks it seems. And everywhere I go, even if I'm out in public, I seem to have a book on the Holy Spirit tucked under my arm. And I told you how I got a little self-conscious about that. I was at my daughter's gym and she was at gymnastics and I had this book the Holy Spirit for today, and I just thought, oh my gosh, people might think I'm a little strange. And then I got convicted about that, so the next day when I was in this coffee shop reading on the Holy Spirit, I just held the book up high so that people could see that, yes, I am studying about the Holy Spirit. Well, this week, my books are primarily having to do with the material I'm going to be working on for the relationships retreat this weekend. So this morning, I was in the same coffee shop, and my books were Real Sex and The Meaning of Sex, And I did not hold them up. (laughs) Matter of fact, I was sitting in the coffee shop and a couple of our church here came in while I was reading. So I was reading like this, (laughs) trying to turn the page and hoping they didn't see the section headings in the chapter on the side there. But so 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But again, love never ends. And this is one of the, I would say, best known passages of Scripture. And what do you usually hear? This passage read at a wedding, right? And, and this would seem appropriate for a wedding. It would seem appropriate for a relationships retreat. But actually, the context for the love chapter, as we call it, is a lengthy discussion on spiritual gifts. Okay? We are now in our eighth message on this series, The Triune God of the Bible. Tonight's our second message on God, the Holy Spirit. And many of the discussions in the life of the church on the Holy Spirit revolve around spiritual gifts, right? We had a theological coffee house not too long ago, and for the most part, we just talked about the spiritual gifts. That was our topic was the Holy Spirit. We talked about the spiritual gifts. And the longest section in Scripture addressing this topic of spiritual gifts is 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But the fact that Paul has to insert instructions on love right in the middle of his longer discussion on spiritual gifts. This alerts us to the fact that something was not quite right in this church in Corinth. A church that had an abundance of spiritual manifestations and spiritual experiences happening in their midst. Paul had written to the Galatians 
about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, right? He had written about the fruit of the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is talking about one of the fruits of the Spirit, love. He starts talking about love, a fruit of the Spirit, in the midst of his wider discussion on the gifts of the Spirit. Because in Corinth, although they had all kinds of spiritual happenings and goings on, all kinds of spiritual experiences, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.1, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. I think it may be much easier to practice the gifts of the Spirit than it is to practice the fruit of the Spirit. So the Corinthians are having these radical spiritual experiences, but yet Paul must call them people of the flesh, not spiritual people. So we see that you can experience the Holy Spirit, but yet not be walking in the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Corinthian church had a wide range of misconceptions about who the Spirit of God is and was And that's not any different today. We have all kinds of myths and misconceptions about who the Holy Spirit is. Tonight, this is our topic. And you might have noticed in 1 Corinthians 13, all that Paul writes about love, about half of what he says is what love is, and the other half is what love is not. Sometimes to understand what something is, you have to know what it is not. Sometimes to understand a person, you have to know not who they are as much as who they are not. Last week and next week, we're looking at who the Holy Spirit is, what He does. Tonight, we're looking at who the Holy Spirit is not. The myths and misconceptions of the Holy Spirit. Now, I hope none of you will be too shocked by this, but we are going to have PowerPoint tonight. I know I've I've done this maybe like twice in my life. We'll see how it goes. Uh, Something else, too, we're also going to have some Q&A at the end if we have time. So, you can ask a question at the end. Be thinking about questions that you want to ask about the Holy Spirit. You can ask anything regarding that, and if I can't answer it, Joel Busby surely will. So, um, (laughs) on that note, let's pray. (laughs) Pray with me once more. God, we come before you with our Bibles open. We need to be taught about who you are. And we want you to do the teaching. I submit myself to you, Lord, as a vessel. And I pray that you would, in spite of me and the cloudiness and the misunderstandings I have in spite of me teach tonight Holy Spirit about who you are and teach us about who you are not and we ask God that ways of thinking about you that have been instilled within us if they're not right change them alter them we pray that your truth would violently collide against falsehood in this place tonight that we would come to truly know who you are than when we are called to worship. This is our prayer. Lifted up in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Let me turn this thing on and move over here. Uh, if you're offended, if you're on that side of the room, my wife's on this side, okay? So, in case she needs to stand by her pitiful man. <laughs> All right. Myth. It's a little loud over here. Myth. Myth? <laughs> Should that be a little myth? Gosh.
Misconception? All right, we'll do that. Misconception one. <laughs> Maybe I can stand over here. Oh, don't say myth. <laughs> All right. Well, this PowerPoint thing, this might be the last one ever. Not that it's connected to the sound system, but the Holy Spirit is an it. This is a myth. So think about how you talk about the Holy Spirit. Think about how other people talk about the Holy Spirit. Oh, I just want the Holy Spirit to fill me. It would just be amazing if the Holy Spirit, if it would just fill me. You know, you hear people talk about the Spirit almost always in reference to an it. What if somebody called you an it? How would you feel? Not a he, not a her, but an it. All right, there are some reasons why you would think this. The Hebrew word, not that you know the Hebrew and Greek words, but still, you'll see what I mean. The Hebrew and the Greek words for spirit can refer to something impersonal. Spirit, wind, air, breath, or spirit, capital S. And both of these words, ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek, both of these words are actually neuter in form. Okay, so they would take the non-personal pronoun. They would take the it pronoun, all right? So it would be easy to see how this understanding develops a bit in our minds. Spirit, wind, breath, it's hard to pinpoint something like this, right? But in Scripture, we begin to have evidence that the Spirit is more than just some it, okay? In the Old Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit is associated with power, with forcefulness, with some divine power and forcefulness. The Holy Spirit will come upon someone and that person will do something amazing, right? Usually it would be prophesying. So there is this mentality that the Holy Spirit is a force or a power to some degree. However, that force and power always conveyed, communicated a person, the person of God. This was the power of God, okay? But a force or power is still in it. Luke, who wrote Acts as well as his gospel, Luke, he seems to continue on a bit of this Old Testament understanding of the Spirit as force or power with some developments. We see developments in Scripture. Paul and John, however, pressure us even more to begin to see the Spirit not just as some it, some impersonal force or power, but as a person. Okay, there are several texts. Here's one of them, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is the work of the Spirit transforming us from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Clearly, this is not an it. This is a person. And Paul, along with uh, Luke in Acts chapter 16, along with Peter, will refer to the Spirit not just as the Spirit as some strange and personal force, but the Spirit specifically of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus. And in John, he uses a term for the Holy Spirit, parakletos in the Greek, paraklete, we would say, this means someone who comes alongside as an advocate, as a comforter, supporter. And this is a masculine word. And so the personal pronoun, the masculine personal pronoun is used in John to speak of the Spirit when he addresses the Spirit as paraclete. So what I'm pointing out to you is that 
though the Holy Spirit is viewed as a force and power in some places in Scripture, the overarching narrative of Scripture is developing this idea of the Spirit not as some first force, but as a person. Not as some power, but as a person who is powerful. And we have the... Um, whoops. Then we have, <laughs> we have the, uh, the historical theologians, the theologians of the, uh, of the church during the patristic era. They came up with the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Telling us that the Holy Spirit is not just a person, but the third person of the Spirit. So, watch yourselves when you speak of the Spirit. Try to always be catching yourself, okay? And know that when you say it of the Holy Spirit, you're not only going against Paul's teaching on the Spirit, not only going against John's teaching of the Spirit, the teaching that the New Testament pressures us into, you're also going against the creeds of the church and historical theology. Not a good idea, okay? And that one simple pronoun, it's. And one of the dangers of referring to the Holy Spirit as an it's is that we would view Him as some force or power. And when you view the Spirit as a force or power, you tend to think you might could wield it or manipulate it, use it. Okay? You heard people talk about, talking about, I just want to get zapped by the Spirit. You know? I just want it to like come on me so I can like do something amazing. You know? Uh there's a guy who uh, had a problem with this in Acts chapter 8. You can look at this later. I am going to read you a small section out of this. Acts chapter 8, we see that the apostles have been, through persecution, spread out abroad from Jerusalem. Philip finds himself in Samaria. Remember, Jesus has said in Acts 1, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's beginning to happen through persecution. Philip ends up in Samaria He preaches the gospel. People receive the gospel. They embrace the gospel. There's a man there named Simon. Simon the magician. Simon Magus. He was very impressive. Because he was spiritually powerful. He could do amazing things. Seeing that he himself was somebody great. They called him the power of God. That is called great. That's like how he went by that I guess. Walking around town in Samaria. They paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. He was so impressive. He had astounded them with his magical powers. Well, he sees the Holy Spirit enter into the Samaritan believers through the prayers, the laying out of hands through the apostles. And he says, wow, I want some of that. Here's what happens. I'm going to read just a bit of this story. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He's treating the Spirit as an it, a force or a power. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I'd love to say that to somebody. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. <laughs> I don't really know what it means, but it's bad, right? Simon Magus is accused of this stuff and it's very bad because he's treating the Spirit as an it and wants to control it, use it. Because he is fascinated with the idea of spiritual power. Okay? The Holy Spirit is not an it. Okay. Misconception. We'll try that too. 
My wife gave me this one. I love this. It's so succinct and so clear. The more normal, then the less spiritual. We tend to assume that the more crazy or weird or extraordinary something is, then man, the Holy Spirit must be behind that, right? What's the more spiritual quiet time? One in which God speaks to you or you have a vision or one in which God is actually quiet. Like we don't really want quiet, quiet times, do we? We want God to speak to us, to be loud, to be noisy a bit. We want something to happen to us and we tend to exalt when something happens. That's the more spiritual quiet time. Not faithfully attending and listening to the Lord when nothing seems to be happening at all. We equate the sensational with the spiritual. If I preach tonight and people are like in tears because they're so moved. You're going to think, man, the Holy Spirit is working through him. But if everyone leaves and they're kind of just ho-hum, well, I don't know, the Spirit's at work here. I mean, if hundreds and hundreds of people are coming to UCF, does that mean the Holy Spirit is at work here? And if everyone leaves and there's only like 10 of us in the room, does that mean the Spirit is less at work? Some of the biggest churches in America are preaching what I would call borderline heresy doesn't necessarily mean the spirit is at work just because something is bigger or larger or more sensational more dramatic i used to suffer from a a spiritual inferiority complex in college because i would be in a worship service and the person like near me one of my friends would just start weeping and crying moved to tears and i had nothing like that i remember there was i was dating this girl And she left a full ride, a full scholarship to the school she was going to, left her family to live by faith on the mission field. And I was stuck studying forestry at the University of Georgia. All right. I mean, oh my gosh, I'm so unspiritual. And she's out in Papua New Guinea somewhere. You know, we tend to equate exciting and extraordinary with, oh, the Holy Spirit. The more normal, the less spiritual. The more mundane, the more ordinary the less spiritual. Uh, Pentecostalism. Now, some of you may come from a Pentecostal background. I have a great appreciation for the Pentecostal movement and what the Pentecostal movement has taught us and done in the life of the church. But as its namesake implies, Pentecostalism takes Pentecost, in Acts 2, as the paradigm for the work of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit works in Acts 2, where suddenly the Spirit of God comes. Loud, noisy, Visual, crazy experiences that are taking place in Acts 2. We looked at this last week. It would make sense if that is your primary paradigm or model of the Spirit's work. That you would assume that the Holy Spirit is always sudden and dramatic. Abnormal in His work. But, there are some works of the Holy Spirit that Scripture speaks about that are not so sudden and dramatic. Okay? And here are a few. Guidance, that's not sudden and dramatic, right? Most of you, you're hoping for something sudden and dramatic as you're praying about who you should date, who you should marry, or what your major should be. And you're finding that God's not actually blaring out from the sky what you should choose to major in, right? And maybe that happens every now and then, that could happen. But usually it's more of a slow, tedious, painful process of guidance. The Spirit will guide us into truth, John tells us. 
The Spirit is interceding for us, Paul tells us. You and I, we're so messed up, we don't even know how to pray, okay? But be comforted in that. Because the Spirit knows how to pray for us, interceding on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. When you're praying, I mean, do you hear groaning? Besides your own, maybe. (laughs) And usually we don't hear this. This is a subtle work that's going on in the heavenly sphere, but we don't even notice this. The work of gradually transforming us. We read earlier how we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I mean, me moving from someone who is a brand new baby Christian to someone who's a slightly more mature Christian, that has taken years. Gradual transformation. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Another slow, tedious work of the Spirit would be the inspiration of Scripture. It's something we see clearly spoken of throughout the Bible, the inspiration of Scripture. When Isaiah was given words to write, he didn't just think, oh, boom, it just happened on the scroll. That's not the way it worked. You can tell when you study Scripture that they have not only been guided to write the Scripture, but to edit the Scripture, to organize the material in such a way that is presentable to the people of God. Slow, tedious, subtle process. It's not sudden and dramatic. Okay? The more normal, the less spiritual, that's a myth. Sometimes the Spirit is very involved in our daily routine. Uh, last week I asked the servant team in our prayer time, who do you think of when you think of someone who's really super spiritual? And they mentioned, and what many of us would naturally say, a missionary, someone who's out there on the field. And I thought about it, and I thought, gosh, you know, I know someone who every day has to get up super early, wipe nasty bottoms with poop in them, Put diaper cream on the nasty bottoms. Feed the things when the things throw the food on the floor and never say thank you. And do this all day long and never complain or have grudges. And that would be my wife. I mean, she's filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to do that all day long. And one day, ladies, if you're a mother in that particular situation, you will know, oh my gosh, I need the Spirit of God to fill me now or I'm going to go crazy and throw this little guy on the other side of the living room, which my wife has never done because she's filled with the Spirit. (laughs) <laughs> Alright, so here's an example of someone who's very unlike the Pentecost experience that the apostles had together in Acts 2. Bezalel. When you hear people talk about the Holy Spirit, do you ever hear anyone mention Aholiab or Bezalel? And maybe me, right? But that's it, probably. Hopefully now we'll begin to talk more about Bezalel. Bezalel is the, one of the first people in the Bible to be spoken of as being filled with the Spirit. I would say he is the first person that is specifically said to be filled with God's Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit not to be a missionary, not to preach, not to go and lead an army in war. He's filled with the Holy Spirit to make art, to build stuff. All right? This is the guy, along with his comrade Aholiab, these two guys were filled with the Spirit to build the tabernacle and all its accoutrements. See, I have called by name Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. All right, do you think of these words when you think of spirit-filled? Ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship. The Old Testament thought of the Holy Spirit in terms of those words at times, okay? So 
if you only see the Holy Spirit in the sudden and the dramatic, you're going to miss him in so many other levels of his operation among us. The more normal is not necessarily the less spiritual. Okay, I know I had some water over here somewhere. Misconception, what are we on? Three. Okay, spiritual experiences signify or show evidence of or equal spiritual maturity. Those of us that we tend to exalt as spiritual heroes among us. Are those who've seen visions. Those who've had Damascus Road style conversion experiences maybe. And I've noticed a tendency in my own life. To view spiritual experiences as a badge. Licensing me to spiritual grandeur. Oh my gosh, God, I just had a really clear vision. (laughs) I am like awesome. Which, by the way, is never the response of anyone who ever has a valid vision from the Lord in the Bible. They say things like, woe is me for I am ruined. Woe is me for I am a dead man. Things like that. That's maybe evidence of a true vision from the Lord. I, I noticed that when students would come to me and reveal to me things that God revealed to them in a vision, they were often the star of that vision. I'm just going to tell you guys, if God gives you a vision, you will not be the star. He will be the star, the celebrity of the vision, okay? Spiritual experiences, we can treat them as though they give us a sense of arrival, that we've arrived at the next spiritual level. And I'm not saying spiritual experiences are wrong at all. We are told that we should expect spiritual experiences. God is spirit. We serve a God who is supernatural, who will move among us. But spiritual experiences may have absolutely nothing to do with our spiritual health or our spiritual maturity. Okay? A few examples. We'll look at two guys named Saul, at least one who started off being named Saul. There was this phrase that went around in ancient Israel, is Saul among the prophets? This phrase became popular because once Saul was anointed king by the prophet Samuel, he was walking on the road and suddenly the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he started prophesying. And they, you know, the locals thought that was a little strange. Hey, look, there's Saul. He's over there prophesying. Is Saul among the prophets? God was doing something amazing in his life at that point. This was a valid spiritual experience. But... Saul ended up disobeying God so much that God removed his spirit from Saul and placed his spirit instead on a young man named David. Well, second, in 1 Samuel 19, we find that, David, that Samuel is eager to kill David, to put him to death. He hears that David has gone to this village of Nioth. So he sends some guys to go and arrest David and basically kill him or bring him back to Saul so he could kill him. Well, these guys have a hard time because every time they go... They go like three times. Saul sends three delegations. Every time they show up, when they get to Naoth where David is, they start prophesying. The Spirit of God comes upon them, they start prophesying. Saul decides he'll go himself, you know, take matters into his own own hands. He's the king after all, right? So he shows up in Naoth. He starts prophesying, and this is a little weird, but we read that all day and all night, Saul 
lies naked prophesying in Naoth. All right. This is not evidence of his spiritual maturity. The man went to kill David, the one on whom God had placed his spirit to be the future king. But yet he has a spiritual experience. It does not equal spiritual maturity. It doesn't validate his spirituality. And there are many instances of this throughout Scripture. From Paul, we have a New Testament example. In 2 Corinthians 12, he speaks... He says, I know a man. He doesn't say it happened to me. He says, I know a man who, but it's clearly he's talking about himself. I know a man who was in a trance and was caught up in the third heaven. Now, I only thought there was one heaven, but apparently there are at least three. And Paul got caught up into this vision of the third heaven. But he says that God gave him a thorn in his flesh. Why? To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. Spiritual experiences can actually lead to spiritual pride. So God must debilitate Paul in some way with a thorn in his flesh to keep him from being conceited about his experience. Okay? Spiritual experiences do not necessarily equate to spiritual maturity. Misconception four. We often equate emotional expression with the work of the Holy Spirit. Emotional equals spiritual. And I, like I mentioned earlier, when there's a worship service and people seem moved to tears, we, we assume, okay, the Holy Spirit is clearly at work. If no one's moved to tears, well, I guess it's gotten better pray a little harder or something. In his preaching or maybe the person, their heart is hard, I don't know. My, uh, my grandmother has recounted to me her salvation. I sort of do two quotes when you have a, something in your hand. Her salvation experience. Is what, this is what that was. <laughs> she, she recounted to me her salvation experience. And she grew up in a very emotionally um, charged religious environment. Primitive Baptist environment. She was at a revival meeting as a little kid. And she was telling me, you know, I tried so hard to get tears to come. I tried so hard. I tried everything I could do to get my tears to come. Because in that setting, emotional expression equaled the Spirit's work in your life. She said, I sat there and I thought of every bad thing I could possibly think of. I started thinking of my daddy dying, my mother dying, and all this. And finally I got one tear and I was able to go down there. Now, we probably are not in environments that are that extreme. (laughs) But we have inherited much of that mentality. Where we assume emotions equal The Holy Spirit's work. We place a lot of emphasis on feeling Him. Place a lot of emphasis on our emotions. Think of this advice that we often get. Just follow your heart. You know, I mean, how many people say this to you? I've heard it a lot in my life. Just follow your heart. Well, I'm not so sure about that. (laughs) Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Just follow your heart, right? And this is not the only place I found this in Scripture, but in Numbers, God says, make this special type of tassel so that you'd remember not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So following after your own heart can lead you into some really terrible situations. 
And a lot of people associate emotions and feelings they have with the movement of the Holy Spirit may not necessarily be true at all. Uh, Our emotions are not neutral ground from sin. The fall of humankind, the fall that we see in Genesis 3, it's affected every area of who we are. It's affected us spiritually. We're we're spiritually fallen. We're uh, physically fallen. We're also emotionally fallen. We cannot entirely trust our emotions. Now, I'm not saying emotions are wrong. Jesus wept. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. My heart recoils within me, we hear God saying. God is an emotional being. And you should be emotional about the gospel, the fact that someone died in your place to give you life. I mean, we should be emotional about this, but we cannot always make the equation between Holy Spirit and our emotions misconception five just as we tend to equate the emotional with the spiritual we tend to assume that the spiritual is holy if something spiritual happens it must be truly from god and we see that with paul and his thorn in his flesh there can be invalid responses to valid spiritual experiences Right? There could be a valid spiritual experience in your life to which you respond inappropriately. And I think we see this a lot. And I've seen it a lot among college students where God just moves in a strong, powerful way. And we don't really know what to do about that movement of the Spirit. And do we do something completely offhand and disorderly and kooky? Matter of fact, once Joel Brooks came and preached for me at a worship service for college students in North Carolina. And when he preached, something really wild and crazy happened. Joel got up and just left and I had to deal with everything, which is fine. Um, but, you know, there was a genuine movement of the Holy Spirit. Joel's sermon was one of the most powerful presentations I'd ever heard on the gospel. And it was so moving that some students just didn't know how to respond, but they wanted to respond in some way, but they responded inappropriately. And it turned off a lot of people, some lost people even, who just left. Because they were too freaked out. Well, what happened? So we see that there can be valid spiritual experiences to which there are inappropriate responses. But there are also spiritual experiences that are not valid at all. They may be spiritual, but they're not right. All that is spiritual is not holy. Writes this New Testament scholar, Edith Humphrey. She's an written a book I was reading not too long ago. There are many experiences that may be spiritual but not holy. We have to remember that there are other spirits besides the Holy Spirit, right? And all throughout Scripture, we see power, spiritual power being demonstrated that is not sourced in God. Remember when Pharaoh took his staff. I'm sorry, not Pharaoh, Aaron. When he went to Pharaoh and he had the staff, God had given him the staff. He gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to Aaron. When you throw the staff down in front of Pharaoh, it will turn into what? A serpent, right? He does this and you think, wow. <laughs> Look at that. A stick, now a snake. What do you think about that, Pharaoh? Well, his court magicians did the same thing. Now, Aaron's snake ate the other guy's snake, which is, I thought was pretty important detail in the story. But they're also able to reproduce the changing of water into blood, which is what God did to the Nile. All that is spiritual is not necessarily 
holy. And look at this in Deuteronomy 13. Let's read this. Uh, If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So here we see God instructing his people to beware of those who demonstrate impressive spiritual powers. And the person mentioned here is a dreamer of dreams. And, you know, depending on what circle you're in, there's a lot of emphasis placed on visions and dreams today. This is a dreamer of dreams. And not only that, he produces signs and wonders. I mean, how many of you have prayed for signs and wonders? I mean, I've prayed to be given the capacity in the spirit to perform signs and wonders. This guy can do it. Shows up among the people of Israel. He has amazing dreams. He has signs and wonders that he can produce. And he predicts the future and it actually comes true. Pretty impressive. But he has bad theology. Let us go after other gods. So someone may be spiritually powerful, but theologically wrong. Not only can it be theologically wrong, a breach of faithfulness to God, but the supernatural stuff has the tremendous power to mislead, to misguide us, to lead us astray. Jesus warned that false Christ, false prophets will arise. They will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. If you read Revelation, the descriptions of the Antichrist, he is a spiritually impressive person or entity who can pull off all kinds of signs and wonders, who could heal people perhaps, do all kinds of amazing things, but yet is there to mislead us, to lead us astray. 1 John 4 We have this instruction. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets are out about and they can do amazing things. They may not not have anything to do whatsoever with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Misconceptions. I've given you five. Let's review. First one, the Holy Spirit is an it, right? Second misconception, the more normal, the less spiritual. Third misconception, spiritual experiences equal spiritual maturity. Fourth misconception, emotional equals spiritual. And this last one we've looked at, spiritual equals holy. So if we have all these warnings, how do we know what really is valid? How do we know when the Spirit is truly at work in someone's life? You know, 1 Corinthians 13 has a lot about what love is not. So what is love? What about in the positive sense, Andy? What is truly from the Holy Spirit? What is truly evidence of spiritual maturity? 
I'll give you two ways that Scripture gives us to judge, to gauge spirituality and spiritual maturity. Okay? First one is obedience. Listen to this from Matthew 7. Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does, who obeys. Who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I mean, we were pretty spiritually impressive. And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who obeys, who does the will of my Father. Here's another way that we can gauge the true work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life is love. Joel referenced this text earlier. We close here with it. And if you met someone and they stood in front of Oak Mountain and said, be moved, and it was moved, you would think, oh my gosh, what church do you go to? (laughs) You have a really deep spiritual question you've asked everybody you could think of. Even Joel Busby. And no one's giving an answer. And you go to this one particular guy and, and, and you ask him and he gives you the deep insight knowledge of what that is. You would think, oh my gosh, I've got to hang out with this person more. If someone could speak in angelic tongues, now that may weird some of you out, but some of you would think, that is cool. Oh my gosh. I want to hang out with that person. But yet Paul writes this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clinging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Talk about someone being emotionally all about Jesus here. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, you can be enthusiastic for Jesus and not love him. And have not love, I gain nothing. Obedience and love. Love, the first fruit of the Spirit, Paul lists in Galatians 5. Obedience, Peter says in Acts 5.32, that God gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. Love and obedience. I want us to be a Spirit-filled community. We want to be a ministry under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a ministry that demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we study who the Holy Spirit is not. Next week, we look at how the Holy Spirit works among us to put to death sin within our own hearts. How it is He transforms us. How He does that work of changing us from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. But tonight, who the Holy Spirit is not. So I'm finished. And that's time for questions. But let's pray. And then, if you have some questions, have time for a couple. And then we'll go. Lord, we want to ask your forgiveness for the ways we might have misrepresented you, for ways we might have easily embrace lies about you. And we ask that you would every day be renewing our understanding of you, giving us a clear vision of who you truly are.
We ask that you would, by your spirit who inspired scripture, move us into scripture. We ask that you would fill us in such a way, Lord, that we would be healed of deep, painful wounds within us, that we would be perhaps even physically healed in accordance to your will and your delight. That there would be dreams and visions that point to your glory and your majesty. But we pray, God, that we would be good stewards, responsible stewards of how you move among us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your teaching. Amen. Okay, well, it's a busy time this semester. I don't want to keep you very long, but there is time for a couple of questions if you guys want. Now, if you need to leave right now, that's fine. You can go ahead. We're not going to, um, we might close in prayer and a song in just a second, but um, that's it. So, if you want to leave, you can leave. Just hopping up and go. You're not unspiritual, right? Doing homework is not unspiritual. Um, but do you have any questions that you'd like to ask about the Holy Spirit or God or Jesus? <laughs> Yes. Yes. question how do we receive the holy spirit what does that look like um when you say we don't really see that we as in at ucf or like just contemporary american religious life yeah uh, i think there's a great tension that i've found especially when i was a college student between what i read in scripture and what jesus seems to say i will experience and then what i actually was experiencing you know greater works than these shall you do what and then you go to church sunday and you're thinking wow that was all I, I think we need to be very carefully seeking the Holy Spirit to work more strongly among us. Uh, what does that look like? <clears throat> in Acts, we see the Spirit of God coming on different groups of people at different times. And there are cer- certain similarities to what that looks like. There are also some distinctions and differences. And sometimes we're not given an exact account of what it was supposed to look like. I think that tells us is that there's no exact way that you... Uh, that it, it doesn't just look in, like some cookie-cutter way. Pentecostal tradition says that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you speak in tongues. And if the, you don't speak in tongues, then the Holy Spirit does not come upon you. I would say that would be wrong and not biblical teaching at all. The scene in Acts chapter 8 is unique because this is when the Holy Spirit comes to the Samaritans. All right? The first time the Holy Spirit comes on non-Jews. Then we see in Acts chapter 10 a similar scene where the Holy Spirit comes on specifically Gentiles, okay? Samaritans were like half-Jews. So we see kind of a staged development of the Holy Spirit entering into people's lives. And there are unique elements to what we see in Acts 8. Because they believe in the gospel, then they receive the Holy Spirit. That doesn't seem to be standard with what Paul teaches. So I think these are unique moments in the history of salvation. Uh, However, there are times when I think we'll pray for someone to be filled with the Spirit... And something more dramatic might happen. And some of you might have had that experience. Uh, There are times after you've already received the Spirit for the first time at salvation where God will be continually filling you and you may have a more dramatic experience. Um, 
I don't think there's a cookie cutter way. And scripture has so many different ways that the spirit works. It would be dangerous to do that. But one thing that you do notice in Acts is a connection between the spirit's work and prayer. So I think we should pray. <laughs> Good question. Let's do one more. Gosh, it would be fun to do way more, but I know you have to go. So, um, One more? Yes. Yeah, good question. I should have mentioned that. This is a huge debate. On the basis of the scripture I read, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never ends, but prophecies will cease, knowledge will cease. A lot of people say, well, you know, that stuff stopped in the apostolic era. I would say that is flat out just wrong. There's no biblical justification for that. That's, I mean, there's just not any. And there are great scholars who have come up with this, and you read the arguments, it, it just... It's, it's an argument based on non, personal non-experience, I believe, more than it is Scripture. And we're told that we're given gifts of the Holy Spirit and should expect the Spirit of God to operate through us, to minister to the body. Now, but, <laughs> there are really strong, clear parameters that Paul gives about how to utilize those gifts. Because in Corinth, they were just all messed up with the way they were doing things. Okay. All right, I will do one more. <laughs> Anyone else? My wife can't ask her questions. She asks questions that I just, I don't know. Oh, come on, somebody. Yes, go ahead. Good. Gosh, it's a great question. No, I have to think about that one. Um, well, number one is this. The Holy Spirit confesses Jesus is Lord. I say that because we see that in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And in 1 John 4, in the context of him saying, test the spirits. The spirit that is from God says Jesus is Lord. So, exalting the lordship of jesus all right christ-centered focus exalting the lordship of jesus if that's not going on something's wrong if if there's some vision that inspires someone to think they're amazing then i would say um that may not be the holy spirit because the holy spirit says jesus is amazing now you're great and god loves you but jesus is amazing okay there are other ways by which the spirit of god or by which other spirits are tested um The the prophet, I mean, they had to worry about this in Old Testament Israel as well because there were prophets who would come, like the one in Deuteronomy 13. Uh, So theology was, of course, a case in Deuteronomy 13. If the theology is bad, they say go after other gods and don't do it. There's also, if someone comes and says this is going to happen and doesn't happen, well, you know, that was not from God. So there's one means by which you test the Spirit. Uh, There's also a lot of community discernment. um, In 1 Corinthians 14, Addressing the gifts of prophecy and the gift of tongues, interpreted tongues. Uh, Paul actually says, test those. You guys together as a community weigh what is said. That's the words in the ESV. Weigh what is said. So there's this idea of community discernment. All right? Something happens, someone speaks a word. Like for me, answering this question, for instance, you all need to test this in a way. You need to decide. All right, well, that sounds okay. Does that, does that line up with scripture? Oh, that's another good test. If it fits scripture. If the spirit says something that doesn't fit scripture, wrong, all right? 
Um, but community discernment, you know, being able to, together with the body of believers to say, yeah, this is right or this is not right. Those are some ways to test the Spirit. Yeah, Chris. Oh, this is a good question. I, I could give you that answer in probably about five minutes, but it'd take that long. T- to give you an exact answer, because people in here are going to weigh what I say like they should, and I want to make sure I'm saying the right thing. So, um, Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. I mean, in Galatians, this is a big idea. Big deal for Paul because someone's come preaching another gospel and that is devoid of the Spirit. And Paul says, I mean, have you begun, now that you've begun in the Spirit with the gospel I preach, you're now continuing on in the flesh. You know, so uh, preaching another Christ, another gospel, that's an issue in Galatians. Um, So yeah, it'd be good to look at that. But I think you can make the general plea that yes, the Spirit of God comes in connection to Christ and the gospel. All right, let's just do one more, and then y'all can... Seriously, you can go at any time, really. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm eager. That wasn't a hand raised. Okay, go ahead. Oh. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. That was good. It, Joel? <laughs> if, if it's okay to test the spirits, why is it okay to test the Lord your God? Well, I think you have to... There, this word testing, uh, uh, peresmos is the noun word. It, it can refer to like a variety of different things. All right? So clearly you don't test God as in, you know, uh, God... Are you sure you're going to tell me that? You know, or I don't know, trying to come up with some example of testing God. You, you know, whatever testing God is, I mean, there could be a range of things. But the, the, the context that we're referring to test the spirits would be examine and evaluate uh, the validity of what's going on. Now, this is a much better question than you even realize because it gets the issue of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay. I mean, the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this has always freaked me out. I thought, oh my gosh, I've surely done this and I'm going to hell. And it doesn't matter what I do, or I preach the gospel, become a minister, it's, I'm not done for. You know, well, we don't exactly know in Scripture, this is, this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But what we see, it occurs in three, all three synoptic gospels mention the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In two instances, the context is when people are attributing the work of Jesus and the Spirit's activity through Jesus to Satan. Okay? So you have to be careful when you test the spirits to say, well, that's not from, that's not from Jesus, that's Satan, okay? But scholars are pretty well agreed that this is not just some one time, oh, I think that must be from Satan, and then you're like bound for hell. Scholars studying and working on this believe this is a continual rejection of the spirit's activity in Jesus. So a continual rejection. All right, so, yeah. Um, well, there's a lot more I'm sure we could talk about, uh, but I know you have a lot of homework, so uh, we can dismiss. But let's uh, close in prayer. And...
If you want to talk more, I mean, heck, you know my email address, right, and phone number, and my office is down there, and I'll, I'll be hanging around for a little while tonight, so you can talk more. Uh, Chuck, would you close us?